Hello, and welcome to the Auditory Chronicles podcast, a monthly program bringing you short tales for your listening pleasure. I'm your host, John McKenzie. In this episode, we bring you the story of an encounter with a strange woman attempting to resurrect her dead beloved. A Modern Witch, adapted from a short story published in 1891. Never shall I forget my first meeting with Irene LaVon. After traveling all day, I had arrived at Long Acres, the estate of my friend Maitland, to find that dinner had been over for at least an hour. Having taken the precaution of dining during the journey, this did not affect me very materially, but my kindly host, who had met me in the hall, took it very much to heart. We quite gave you up, my dear fellow, we did indeed, he reiterated, grasping my hand with additional fervor each time he made the assertion. My wife will be so vexed that you are missing dinner. A lot of country neighbors, Maitland explained. They like a big feed from time to time. I put out the old port and my wife wears her smartest dress and all the diamonds. It is one of Maitland's little foibles that he never can resist drawing attention to his family's diamonds or the discomfort of his wife concerning them. He continued, it is quite a fuss to persuade her to put them all on. Maitland pushed open the drawing room door and a flood of light streamed out into the hall. Dazzled by the sudden glare, I stepped back, but not before I had caught the sight of a most striking figure at the further end of the long room. Who on earth is that? I whispered. Which? Oh, the one playing the harp, you mean, Maitland replied. A rare beauty, isn't she? I thought you would find her out pretty soon. I see you are admiring Miss Lavon like the rest of us, said Mrs. Maitland in a low voice. I calmly walked forward and shook hands with my hostess. She greeted me with her customary cordiality, and I was feeling perfectly at home in spite of my dusty clothes. Such a talented young lady, Mrs. Maitland continued. She can play positively any kind of instrument. I am bound to say Miss Lavon makes a great sensation wherever she goes. Of course, she has wonderful powers. I was about to inquire in what these powers consisted when Mrs. Maitland was called away. I looked again at Miss Lavon. She slowly rose from her low seat and crossed the room with the slow, mechanical motion of a sleepwalker. To my intense surprise, she came straight towards me and stood in an expectant attitude about a yard from where I was standing. Her glorious eyes were resting on me as if she would read my innermost thoughts whilst I responded with an idiotic smile. I don't know how long I had been looking like a fool when Miss Levon turned away as abruptly as she had approached and walked straight to the door. It was a great relief to find that the entire party had migrated to the further end of the room. I seized my opportunity and fled from the drawing room. As the baize door swung behind me, a sudden draft extinguished my candle. I groped my way down the long corridor, which was in darkness except for a bright streak of moonlight that streamed in through a window at the further end. I had just decided that it was my plain duty to give Maitland the address of a good shop where he could procure cheap lamps for warming passages when I discovered that the said window was open. It quite accounts for the howling draft through the house, I thought. Just the thing to give one rheumatism at this time of year. Advancing with the intention of excluding the chilly blast, I was suddenly arrested by the sight of a motionless figure kneeling in front of the window. It was Irene Levon. I had not noticed her in the confusing patch of moonlight. Her arms were resting on the windowsill, her beautiful face gazing upwards with an expression of agonized despair. Evidently, she was quite unconscious of my presence. She gave a low groan, so full of unquenchable pain that my blood fairly ran cold. Then, rising to her feet, she leaned far out into the chill night air, stretching her arms up towards the stars. Oh, my beloved, is there no mercy? She cried, and the sound of her voice was like the wind moaning through rocky caverns. My heart is breaking, my strength is almost at an end. How much longer must I suffer this unspeakable misery? Clearly this sort of thing was not intended for strangers, but I could not take my eyes off her for a moment. Such an exhibition of wild passion I had never witnessed before or since. 
Irene sank on her knees and buried her face in her hands. Now was my time. I crept noiselessly back up the corridor until my hand was actually on the bay's door. Then excitement got the better of prudence, and tearing it open, I rushed wildly across the hall and up the staircase, never pausing until I was safe in my own room, with the door locked behind me and the unlighted bedroom candle still clutched firmly in my hand. It was a wet morning. When the breakfast bell rang, I descended and found Mrs. Maitland was pouring out tea for her guests at the meal. Have you been introduced? whispered Mrs. Maitland to me as she noted the entry of Miss Levon, and without waiting for an answer she called out merrily, My dear Irene, you must positively come and entertain Mr. Carew. To my astonishment, Miss Levon approached, taking the vacant seat next to mine, and began at once to talk in the most friendly way imaginable. Not a trace of eccentricity was perceptible in her manner. It was almost easier to believe that I had been the dupe of a portentous nightmare than that this charming woman enacted such a strange part a few hours earlier. Later, Mrs. Maitland introduced the subject of fortune-telling. Irene, will you please tell Mr. Tucker's fortune, she urged eagerly. I am sure you know the way, because I have seen a mysterious book about palmistry in your room. Miss Levon acceded to the general request that she would show her skill. Several people pressed forward at once to have their fortunes told. I watched the exhibition with some interest. She examined the hands submitted to her notice and interpreted the lines. The majority of the fortunes were composed of predictions, the conventional mixture of illnesses and love affairs. I glanced at her face. Not a trace of enthusiasm was visible. She was telling fortunes as mechanically as a cottager knits stockings. Now we have all been done except for Mr. Carew, said Mrs. Maitland, who was enjoying the whole thing immensely. He must have his fortune told. You will do him next, won't you, Irene? Never, Miss Levon said firmly. She merely turned away with such an air of inflexible determination that even the ardent hostess refrained from pressing her any further. My curiosity was considerably excited by finding myself an exception to the general rule. Was the inference to be drawn from Miss Levon's behavior flattering, or the reverse? I had no chance of finding out until late in the afternoon when the rain ceased and we all gladly seized the opportunity of getting some exercise before dinner. The different members of the party quickly dispersed in opposite directions. A few exceptionally active young people tried to make up for lost time by starting a game of tennis on the cinder courts. Some diverged towards the stables. I contrived to wait about near the door until I saw Miss Levon crossing the hall. What do you say to going up the hill on the chance of seeing a fine sunset, I said as she joined me. She nodded assent and turning away from the others we began to climb a winding path. When we had gone about a quarter of a mile we stopped and looked round. Far out in front stretched a beautiful valley lighted by gleams of fitful sunshine. Miss Levon, I said abruptly, why wouldn't you tell my fortune this morning? Why am I alone excluded? I should be irresistibly compelled to tell you the truth, she said very quietly. I have spared you, but it is in vain that we seek to avoid our fate. Rest here. And seizing my wrist, she dragged me down on the fallen trunk of a tree that lay half hidden by the tall grass at the side of a path. A more dank, unwholesome situation for a seat on a wet day it would be impossible to conceive, but I preferred running the risk of rheumatic fever to contradicting Miss Levon in her present mood. Only I hoped the explanation would be exceedingly brief. You claim that you never saw me before last evening, she said. Certainly, I answered with great astonishment. It was undoubtedly our first meeting, I am sure. To my horror, Miss Levon wrung her hands with the same expression of hopeless suffering that I had seen before. It is too cruel, she moaned. After all this dreary waiting and watching, to be met like this? Oh, shall I never find my beloved? Never! Never! Her voice died away with a sob of despair. I hardly understand what you are alluding to, I said as nicely as I could. But if you trust me, I promise to do anything that lies in my power to help you. You promise, she exclaimed eagerly. Mind, you are bound now, bound to my service. 
This was taking my polite offer of assistance rather more seriously than I intended. Muttering some commonplace compliment, I begged to be further enlightened. You will not repeat to any living soul the mysteries I am about to disclose, she began. Remember, if you ever feel tempted to disclose a single word of these hidden matters, there are unseen powers who will amply avenge the profanation. Know then that since my beloved was snatched from me by what dull men call death, I have devoted myself to the study of the occult sciences on a concentrated effort to discover some link of communication with the unseen world. I will not dwell on my toils and suffering, for at last the truth has been revealed to me. I have foreseen your arrival at Longacres in the precise fashion in which it really took place. Mr. Carew, Irene spoke conclusively, you are to be the medium. It was a curious sensation, mixing again with the commonplace pleasure-seekers at Longacres. Irene had completely subdued my will by her fascinations, and though I hated and in private ridiculed all supernatural dealings, I was prepared to try the wildest experiments at her bidding. The trial of my obedience arrived sooner than I anticipated as she exclaimed with great excitement, Tonight we'll see us successful or forever lost. What do you mean? I inquired dubiously, for it did not sound a very cheery prospect. I mean that tonight the planets are propitious, she replied, and with your help the chain of communication will be at last complete. What do you want me to do? I said. The crucial moment will be at midnight in the ruined chapel, observed Irene, as if she was stating the most ordinary fact. Preposterous, I exclaimed. It's quite out of the question. Mrs. Maitland has a lot of people coming to dinner, and we can't possibly wander around the garden at midnight. Indeed, what would people say if they saw us? Do you imagine that I allow myself to be influenced by the opinion of poor-spirited fools? inquired Irene with fine scorn as she sobbed and prayed me to grant her this one request. It might be the last thing she would ever ask. Well, she was dramatically beautiful, and I am but human, so before she left me, I had promised to do what she wished. Nothing of any interest happened during the dinner party. When it was at last terminated, Mrs. Maitland again, smartly dressed as she was the evening before, retired with the other lady guests to the drawing room. As I wandered across the hall to join the other men in the smoking room, I was interrupted by an icy touch on my wrist. Turning, I saw Irene by my side with a dark cloak thrown over her evening dress. Without speaking a word, she drew me towards a side door into the garden, which was seldom used, and opened it noiselessly. Remember your promise, she whispered in a voice of such awful menace that, feeling all resistance was useless, I followed her out into the darkness. I tell you, the spirits are abroad tonight. The air is thick with unseen forms, she said. Speechless, my teeth chattering with cold and general creepiness, I followed Irene through the shrubberies until we reached the site of a ruined chapel which had originally joined onto the old wing of the Maitland House. Of this building, little remained except portions of the outer walls overgrown with ivy. Only one window of the house happened to look out in this direction. I could see a light shining through the blind, and with a touch I drew Irene's attention to it. Do not alarm yourself with vain fears, she whispered. It is only Mr. Maitland's dressing room. All will be quiet soon. As she spoke, the light was suddenly extinguished. Only then did I realize the full horrors of my position. When that bedroom candle went out, the last link which bound me to civilization seemed to have snapped. Although I had the greatest admiration for Irene, I was at the mercy of an enthusiast who had broken loose from all conventional restrictions which I hold in such respect. We were standing in the deep shadow of the old wall. The silence was intense. Indeed, I hardly dared breathe for fear of drawing down some misfortune on my devoted head. Suddenly, the stillness was broken by the distant sound of the stable clock striking twelve. It has come, whispered Irene, stooping towards me with an expression of the utmost anxiety. 
Now you must obey me absolutely, or we shall both incur the wrath of the unseen powers. No wavering. First, to establish the electric current between us, you must hold me firmly by the wrist and pass your hand slowly up and down my arm. I hesitated. The proceeding struck me as extraordinary. Will you imperil us both? muttered Irene in such a tone of agony that I seized her arm and began to rub for my life. All will be well, my friend, she murmured, sinking down with an air of exhaustion on the lid of an ancient stone coffin that lay halfway overgrown with ivy at our feet. Keep your hold on my hand, and the unseen influences have no power to hurt us. Now drink this. With these words, she offered me a small bottle of a dull blue color and very curious shape. I examined the little flask suspiciously. Never can I reveal by what means I procured this invaluable treasure and the precious fluid that it contains, replied Irene, in answer to my inquisitive glance. Suffice it to say that for countless ages it laid concealed in the cerements of a mummy. That settled me. I instantly resolved that no power on earth should induce me to taste the nasty mess. I am dreadfully sorry, I whispered, but it upsets me to drink anything except water. I literally, I, I couldn't keep it down a minute, so it seems hardly worthwhile to risk wasting this valuable fluid. Am I to be baffled at this hour by human weakness? cried Irene. It shall not be. Perhaps the odor alone may be sufficiently powerful to work our purpose. And uncorking the bottle, she held it towards me. The smell was pungent but not disagreeable. Now all is completed, she said when I had inhaled a few whiffs. You have only to gaze before you and wish with all the force of your will that my beloved may appear. We stood perfectly still, hand clasped in hand. Irene had risen from her grim seat and was leaning against me for support. Her cloak had fallen off and I thought that she looked like a beautiful spirit herself against the dark background of ivy. In obedience to her orders, I fixed my eyes on space and tried to wish. Hardly had I begun when a figure emerged from behind the opposite wall and glided slowly across the chapel towards us. I was so amazed that I could hardly believe the evidence of my senses. As for Irene, she only smiled with ineffable bliss as if it were exactly what she had expected all along. It was a rather cloudy night, so that I had great difficulty in following the movements of the mysterious figure. When it gained the center of the chapel, it paused, and then slowly turned towards the wall of the house. As far as I could see, it was making some wild motion with its upraised arms. Whether a benediction or menace, it was impossible to discern at that distance. And then, whilst my eyes were fixed upon the dark figure, it began slowly to rise into the air. At this portentous sight, I don't mind confessing that my hair fairly bristled with horror. At that instant, fortunately for the preservation of my reason, the moon, gleaming from behind a cloud, gave me a revelation. In a moment, I recovered my self-possession. Irene clung to me with both hands and expressed a fear that the outraged spirits would tear us to pieces if we moved. Disengaging myself from her grasp, I crept away, hiding as well as I could behind the scattered ruins. In this manner, I contrived, without being discovered, to reach the foot of the long ladder I had glimpsed planted against Mr. Maitland's dressing room window and the dark figure ascending it. I rushed forward and seized the ladder. It's no use resisting, I shouted. If you don't give up quietly, I'll shake. At this point, I was effectually silenced any further threats by a heavy blow on the head. For days, I lay insensible from concussion of the brain. When I was at last pronounced convalescent, my friend Maitland was admitted to my room, being bound by solemn promises not to excite me in any way. With heartfelt gratitude, he shook my hand and thanked me for saving his family diamonds. I shall take better care of them in the future, he said. Precious lucky for me that you heard the burglars. It was just a chance that one broke his neck when you pulled down the ladder, otherwise they would have finished you off before you arrived on the scene. I may here remark that I never thought it necessary to correct the version of the story which I found was already generally accepted. 
To this day, Maitland firmly believes that I was just getting to bed when, with supernatural acuteness, I divined the presence of robbers under his dressing room window and creeping quietly out, attacked them. By the by, is Miss Levon still staying here? I presently inquired in as calm a voice as I could command. No, she left suddenly the day after your accident. Why, that very night, curiously enough. I met her evidently walking in her sleep down the passage as I rushed out at your shout, Maitland continued. She passed quite close to me without making any sign and was quite unconscious of it the next day. In fact, referred with some surprise to having slept all through the row. She complained of feeling upset by the affair and wished to go home. We did not press her to stay as she is liable to nervous attacks which are rather alarming. Maitland made his way toward the door as he concluded, Now I must not talk too much, or the doctor will say I have tired you. So goodbye for the present. And that was the last I heard of Irene LaVon. We hope you enjoyed our presentation of A Modern Witch, adapted from a short story anonymously published in 1891, is read by John Quinn, and featuring the track Souffle 5 by Adragante. Be sure to join us next month when we bring you our season finale, which will be an Auditory Chronicles original tale. In the meantime, feel free to visit our website at auditorychronicles.com for an archive of previous episodes, as well as links to our Twitter feed and Facebook page. For Auditory Chronicles, I'm John McKenzie. Thanks for listening.